we've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truth behind it. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Joan Alanto. Don Palumbo, I am really excited to be here today. I've never been more excited. Peak level excitement. It was very NPR of us. Yeah. I'm so excited. Thank you. Yes. Anyway, sorry. Uh, Exciting times at Midwest Murder. We really do appreciate our fans so very much. Don, what are folks saying about Midwest Murder these days? Some uh, pretty great things. Um, LDog77 said, bomb.com. (laughs) Bomb.com. This podcast is amazing. The details you hear about these murders is mind-blowing. The hosts are great and tell the story like you were there. Keep up the good work. Thank you. That is super duper cool. Thanks, L-Dog. We appreciate you. We appreciate you very, very much. And then uh, um, LR, I hope I'm saying Beckel? Beckel? Is it Beckel? Beckel or Beckel? 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 Uh, that's what I was going to say, but um, said once you start, you can't stop. This uh, we're like potato chips; you can't have just one. Like Pringles, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this podcast is on my top to listen to. They are funny and serious when needed. Has great information on murders I knew about but didn't know the details. When you listen to them, I feel like they're watching the whole thing. Don't miss it. Woo. That is so cool. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We sincerely appreciate you guys, and it's really motivating, inspiring, and uplifting that you take the time out of your busy lives to listen to our podcast and and give us a review. So please do continue supporting the podcast by reviewing us on iTunes. It's Midwest Murder and we th- and we really do thank you we guys. We are so appreciative. It does great things for us. So uh keeps us keeps us cruising, keeps us moving. Shout out to Eric Michael Anderson for the awesome intro music to Midwest Murder. He recorded it in conjunction with Drs. Eric and Diana Anderson at Minot State University. Big thanks to author CJ Wynn. You can find her book on Amazon. She helped write out our murdery intro. I love it. And thank you to Nomad Design House. Yeah. Thank for you. For creating to our excellent logo. Big shout out. Thanks all, to all of you guys for your help in supporting Midwest Murder. Today's story takes place in 1983. What's happening back in 83, aside from me in diapers, of course? I was. In the womb. In the womb. I was in diapers. While Jim Henson's Fraggle Rock debuts on HBO. Amazing. Tom Brokaw takes over as lead anchor on NBC News. Dude would have a big rain. Huge rain. Uh, Him and Dan Dan Rather are Mm -hmm. at least the ones that I remember most growing up. Sure. The D.A.R.E. program is launched in the United States. Here's a big one. In 1983, McDonald's introduced the McNugget. Shut up. Game changer. Really? Yeah. That's only 37 That's only 37 years old. That's it, man. And McNugget. Harold Washington is the first black man elected mayor in Chicago. Progress. It the took Washington us, it, it took, took us, us until a long 1983. Time. Nice. The Washington Redskins defeat the Miami Dolphins in the Super Bowl. Big sad. I'm a Dolphins fan. Return of the Jedi comes out, finishing what was then the greatest film trilogy of all time and really uh, pissing off a lot of adults with Ewoks. Kids Mm -hmm. loved them, though. Microsoft Word is released. In 1983, really? 1983. Wow. Sally Ride becomes the first Mm. woman in space. Wheel of Fortune, Sally Ride, heavy metal suicide. Uh, Wow, that is from... from, um, I don't know. uh, We didn't start the fire. Every time I hear oh, Sally Ride's okay. name, I sing the song. You're She's welcome. in there. That's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So high five That's to Sally awesome. Ride. That's that great. And back also in 83, another pretty big one, significant moment in progress. Vanessa, Vanessa Williams becomes the first African-American to be crowned Miss America. And then also the first one to have it 
taken away. I did not know that. Yeah. Whoa. She, I think it was the first one. And she had it taken for any, away, huh? For any Steel Magnolias fans, um, it reminds me of the line where she says, found her tinsel down around her knees. That's, that's anyway, she was posing nude for Whoa. Uh, Playboy and had it oh. removed. Well, that doesn't away. seem like a reason to have it no, taken away. not at all. Bunch of prudes. Yeah. So although our story culminates in 1983, there are years of precipitating history leading up to the fateful moment. It's the story of one of North Dakota's most notorious crimes, one that includes an armed standoff and subsequent gun battle, the deaths of multiple law enforcement officers, a four-month multi-state manhunt, and a fugitive apprehension that ends in a consummation by fire. It's an event so infamous, it is now studied by the United States Marshal Service as what not to do in fugitive apprehension. Several things were happening in the heartland of America to set the stage for this deadly confrontation. Our story begins in the 70s, when it was good times for America's farmers. Demand for American agricultural products was high. People all over the world wanted American food and had the money to pay for it. This worldwide demand caused the prices of American farm commodities to skyrocket in the early 70s. For example, prices for wheat and corn doubled and even tripled in just a few years. Eager to meet the demand, farmers began investing heavily in several things. They bought more land. They bought more machines, more farm tech, seeds, fertilizers, pesticides, services, irrigation systems, everything. It seemed to them that demand would stay high and spending money on expansion was a smart move. Encouragement to do so was rampant. Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts urged farmers to plant from fence row to fence row to meet the growing foreign and domestic needs. And farmers weren't necessarily paying out of pocket for all this expansion. Prices were high, demand was high, and these things made it easy for farmers to obtain credit from local banks and the farm credit system. Basically, they were borrowing money to beat hell. Several things happened because of all this expansion and borrowing. Some of them good, some of them not so good. New and improved farm tech helped farmers increase yields, but at the same time reduced the number of farms and farmers needed to produce crops. In 1940, one American farmer produced enough food to feed 15 people. By 1960, one American farmer could feed 65 people. Oh my gosh. Big that's numbers. huge. Yeah. I, wow. When, when, when I came across that, I just, I just would not have expected. And that's only in 20 years. That's in right. 20 years. That's still in the same, I mean, could be the same generation. Yeah. Well, it is the same in, Indeed it was. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was kind of what certainly was being passed along and... As farmers' land increased in value, they had more security for additional credit, making it easier to buy more land. The problem was land prices and interest rates went through the roof. Farmers in the Midwest were paying two, three, four thousand dollars per acre of farmland and paying interest rates as high as 21%. Into the 80s, farmers kept betting that demand would increase and prices would stay high. Alas, this was not to be. Record production resulted in a glut of farm commodities forcing prices down. Following the 1979 U.S. grain embargo on the Soviet Union, U.S. farm exports declined more than 20%. Ugh. Farm debt hit a staggering $215 billion by 1984, double what it had been in 78. That's only six years. I, it, I mean, it happened I'm, fast. Oh my gosh. And this, this is all in the course of just... 10, 15, 20 years, right. it's, it's not that long. So farm foreclosures rose dramatically. Economists estimate that more than a third of all farmers were in serious financial trouble in the 80s. Nearly 6,000 farmers filed for bankruptcy in 1987 alone. The stresses on individuals and families was immense. All too often, farmers just cracked under the strain. The rate of suicide among farmers in the 80s was four times the national average. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's brutal. It's super sad. Brutal. Oh. And there were incidents like that of Dale Burr from Lone Tree, Iowa, of farmers turning their rage and desperation on others. Dale Burr was 63 years old and staggering with over half a million dollars in debt. 
on December 9th, 1985, he went on a violent rampage, first killing his wife, Emily, then Hills Bank and Trust Company President John Hughes, and then a neighbor farmer named Richard Goody. After these three horrific murders, he shot himself at the Burr family farmhouse. Police found a note alongside Emily's body saying he just couldn't manage his problems anymore. That's horribly tragic. And I, and I mean, it, you know, suicide and, and dying by suicide is absolutely no joke. Um, why, why take three others with you too, yeah, man? Just to snap like dang, that under, under. Dang. And well, and, and that's the thing. It's, it's like, we, it's we don't terrible. have, we're not able to ask why. I mean, that's uh, because you just, you don't know what a person's carrying, you know, and when, and, and how they're going to snap. That's awful. The story we tell today on Midwest murder is, is a story of one of those Midwestern farmers who were in crisis in the eighties. But it's a very different story. Many farmers blamed their credit problems on bankers and government lending agencies that had, they believed, encouraged them to borrow more money than was wise or necessary. This is a story of a North Dakota farmer who, without a doubt, believed the United States government was the cause of all his problems. It is a story rooted in anger, in bigotry, in conspiracy theory, in political radicalism, in violent protest, even in armed revolt. All of these fueled by the ultra-conservative, white supremacist, anti-Semitic propaganda of a tax protest group called the Posse Comitatus. The Posse Comitatus movement began in the late 60s, in Oregon and California, but it really takes off during the mid-70s and 80s when movement leaders were able to take advantage of the farm crisis in rural America and use it to disseminate posse ideology throughout the Midwest. According to a 1976 FBI report, the posse had 78 chapters located in 23 states, concentrated for the most part in the Great Plains and the Midwest. That's a, wow, that's a heavy movement. It's big. It's the whole sovereign movement right. spreads through the farmland in the Midwest like a like a disease. Quite frankly, if you ask me, and it it gets worse. Don, sure. Uh, well, and it's that's a that's a lot of um, icky things to be rooted in. You oh, know, when you were describing, you know, the it's, the bigotry, anger, conspiracy oh, theory, political. I mean, it's like, wow, when are you going to stop? Like, that's a lot of things to list off, which is well crazy. I haven't I haven't stopped. It's. Ugh. So Posse Comitatus is an extreme right-wing group that takes its name from the Latin for power of the county. The driving idea behind Posse Comitatus is that the, the county is the highest and only legitimate level of government to which citizens owe allegiance. So not not state, you know, which is a, a lot of a lot of politicians say, you know, let's leave it to the state. It's it's even it's even it's even tighter, more, more, almost more tribal, even if you will, sure. but county, yeah, county. And and so posse comitatus members claim independence from federal and state authority. They believe that only the county, headed by a sheriff chosen by the community's white male residents, has the right to enforce the law. Uh, okay. Oh yeah, so these guys are great. So many problems with this. Pos- Posse <laughs> comitatus members often refuse to pay income taxes. They argue that tax laws are invalid or unconstitutional, are un- unconstitutional, and that the government is stealing their money. Posse members go so far as to suggest armed resistance and vigilante justice to protect themselves from what they see as the tyrannical powers of the government and the IRS. Additionally, Posse Comitatus members are generally unwilling to recognize the government's right to repossess property, and they deny the worth of U.S. currency because paper money is not based on actual gold reserves. So it would just be, here's a brick of gold? That's how, I mean, or a gold coin or something? I mean, I can't even begin to understand what sort of formal system they would sure. want to choose to, to go by. And would they have anything? I mean, if it's not based on the gold reserves, you know, what is, I mean... What are you basing your money on, bro? Uh, well, the gold so, reserves, well, I guess, but... Oh, an- wow. Another nefarious and unifying characteristic of Posse Comitatus members is anti-Semitism, or the contention that Jews are inherently inferior to whites. 
in their minds, no, quote, Jew-dominated legislature or Congress has the ability to make laws that real white Americans are obliged to follow. Oh, my gosh. Anti- Oh, yeah, it's... I have a feeling I'm going to be very angry by the end of this. You are. Okay. It was hard hard researching this one and preparing for this. There's some infuriating stuff that that, yeah. that is permeating throughout this story i'll quit interrupting you now so no it's dope i know <laughs> no, but... i'm gonna keep making you mad anti-semitism was part of the posse comitatus platform from the very beginning promoted by the movement's founders henry beach and william potter gale henry beach had been a member of the pro-nazi silver shirt movement during the 30s the Silver Shirts were an underground American fascist organization that called for a Christian commonwealth in America that would combine the principles of racism, nationalism, and theocracy while excluding Jews and non-whites. The Silver Shirts claimed they would save America from Jewish communists just as, quote, Mussolini and his black shirts saved Italy and as Hitler and his brown shirts saved Germany. William Potter Gale was a pernicious anti-Semite who referred to himself as Reverend Creepy, though he had, he had no formal education. Gale's message to his followers was that Jews were children of Satan and that a Jewish conspiracy was acting to take over America. Gale is perhaps best known for a soundbite from a sermon broadcast in Kansas back in 1982. Quote, if a Jew comes near you, run a sword through him. Oh, <sighs> it's hard to repeat. Oh my gosh! And and this is so they were so, just okay. Okay. Gail's ideas were informed by Christian uh, by a, it's a book Christian Identity, a racist, anti-Semitic, and white supremacist interpretation of Christianity, which advocates that only Germanic. Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Nordic, and Aryan people are the chosen people, and the belief that all non-whites will either be exterminated or enslaved in order to serve the white race in the new heavenly kingdom on earth under the reign of Jesus Christ. Well, how nice of them. They included a few more groups of people since World War II. Yeah. Totally open-minded folks. Celtic and Nordic people are okay now. They're okay. Well, that's good. You guys found room for more. Dripping in sarcasm. Oh, yeah. It must be said that Christian identity, politics, and the Posse Comitatus movement had a strong influence on many farmers who were in crisis in the 70s and 80s. These groups preyed on farmers' desperation, frustration, sorrows, and woes, and they took advantage of their desperate situations to spread their hateful conspiracy theories. This is the story of one North Dakota farmer, North Dakota born and raised, who fell prey to Christian identity politics and became a leader in the Posse Comitatus movement. Today, on Midwest Murder, we bring you the story of Gordon Call. This so that's gonna, a lot to yeah. take in, and, and that is what is, again, like permeating the atmosphere of this story. Call is embedded in the Posse movement, and, and and he's a very interesting man, which we'll go into, but he's he's a farmer. He's in the he's in the Midwest. Farmers have it rough. They feel they've been many feel that they've been taken advantage of by the government. And it's it's an insidious m- movement. So uh, did he actually fall prey? I don't think that a person I, can fall prey to these types of ideas and ideals. How Oh, I can't even form words. Like how, how this isn't falling prey to this, 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 this stuff. I, I don't understand that. And second question. Okay. So the Posse Comitatus is, is based, um, you know, at, at a county level, right? And, and I'm, I'm looking for your words here. Um, so they claim independence from federal and state authority. Mind you, um, how are uh, and they were anti-tax, right? Mm. Oh yeah. Okay, so uh, all right, they arm their own citizens. Okay, so federal and state authority. So you don't need police, right? Because you're taking care of that yourself. Okay, um, and but you do need a sheriff, um, chosen by the community's white male residents, just the white males. Okay, noted. 
uh, what if, what about your fire? Like, what, what about that? Um, what about your education services? I presume, I, I presume you take care of that yourself. Ho- homeschool right? for sure. Homeschool. I, I'd imagine. Yep. Yeah. Some- How about health services? Do you just, you just pray the disease away? Is that, is that what happens here? Or you just, or it just doesn't happen? Like, um, road maintenance, you need roads somewhere. So, uh, and a lot of those come from federal funding, uh, waste removal. I mean, I get it. You're on a, you're on a farm. You can burn your garbage. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. not trying to plead my no, case no, to no. you, but you're, I just, you're, I'm, uh, I'm but, on your side. But, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's insane. But, but it's, 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 it's a little crazy. I, I don't like taxes any more than you, no, but guess I what? It, I but, like education. I like roads. I like the fire and police department. I like that an I, ambulance can get me at my house. If I, if I yeah. fall to injury, look, there's a lot of, Hey, we got six inches of snow today. Guess what? I don't have to shovel my street. Somebody's going to take Your care of that for me. Your actual street, right? My, my, yeah. my street, you know. It's, yeah, and somebody no, picked up my garbage this morning. That's awesome because my tax dollars went to that. So I just had to, I, I'm putting away my soapbox. I'm I'm listening. It's, I'm ready dude, to it's, it's a lot. Uh, we'll, we begin our story now with Gordon Call's service in World War II where he was nothing short of a hero. He served as a turret gunner on a B-25 and shot down 10 enemy planes. Eventually, he was awarded the Bronze Star, the Silver Star, two Air Medals, two Purple Hearts, and a Presidential Unit Citation. He sustained multiple injuries. Injuries so severe, doctors wanted to send him home from the front line, but Call insisted on staying. He took shrapnel in the jaw, chest, and hip that was never fully removed. Soon after returning stateside, he married and began farming in North Dakota. Times were hard, and he sought winter work in Southern California to supplement his farm income, and it was there that he was introduced to the doctrine of Christian identity and to the Posse Comitatus movement. He was heavily influenced by a book called The International Jew by none other than Henry Ford. Yes, that Henry Ford. You know, the Model T Henry Ford. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Ford Motor Company Ford. Ford did... Ford did... I believe yeah. we can credit him with giving us a five-hour work or five-day work week, as opposed to what it was a six-day work week right. back then. But thanks um, for Labor Day. Not, um, not, not necessarily the nicest guy either. Uh, his, and and it, actually, I think uh, the Ford Motor Company um, actually spoke out against Henry Ford. Uh, I, I mean, you know, we're right, talking like, we're talking about grandkids saying this dude's crazy. Yeah, you know, the, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Well, the international Jew, it, it's essentially an anti-Semitic rant that makes wild claims like taxation is a scheme by international Jews to enslave America. Nevertheless, inspired by the book in 1967, call refuses to pay his taxes. And he writes a letter to the IRS officially declaring his protest of federal taxation and calling the IRS, I quote, the synagogue of Satan under the second plank of the Communist Manifesto. Gordon Call believes America is following communism and not the Constitution. So throughout this, into the 70s, Call continues not paying taxes and eventually organized the first Texas chapter of the Posse Comitatus. He's very vocal and public about his beliefs. In 1976, he appears on a Texas television program stating that income tax was illegal, and he encourages others not to pay their income taxes. He also gives several radio interviews making similar declarations. Building support for the Posse Comitatus movement. In the wake of this publicity campaign, the IRS chooses to make an example of Call, hoping to deter other tax protesters. In April of 1977, Call is convicted of two counts of failing to file federal income tax returns. He spends nine months in prison and is put on probation for five years. Following his release, Call becomes increasingly involved in posse comitatus and sovereign citizen movements, which seek to reform, which seek to form parallel courts and governments and to withdraw recognition of the federal government. Call also ignores the terms of his probation. He regularly carries a firearm, firearm in public, continues to refuse to pay his taxes, and in the early 80s, he returns to North Dakota with his family. Oh, lucky us. They settle near Medina 
with the intention of establishing a sovereign citizen township. It's actually in Heaton, where his uh, farmstead was. In July of 1980, Call is summoned to appear in federal court on a probation violation charge, but refuses to do so. A warrant is subsequently issued, followed by several unsuccessful attempts to arrest Call. In 1981... Gordon Call refuses to turn himself over to North to a North Dakota federal marshal, Harold Bud Warren. Warren does not pursue Call for two reasons. One, he feels Call's probation violation is, quote, hardly a serious crime. And two, he knows Call is a crack shot and keeps his home stocked with arms and ammo and is afraid of an armed confrontation. Bud Warren doesn't know it at the time but the latter would prove to be a fatal premonition. Warren's successor, United States Marshal Ken Muir, takes Call's warrant for arrest more seriously and on February 10th, 1983, announces a statewide all-points bulletin. Local law enforcement, the FBI, and the U.S. Marshals are all on the lookout for Gordon Call. So two years went by. Oh, yeah. So is what it looks like. I mean, so, so Warren... He moves refu- on. Moves on. He's like, nope, I'm out. This guy's. Uh, this guy's. Nuts. July of 1980. July of 1980. He is summoned to appear in federal court for right. probation violation. He doesn't, and a warrant is issued. So you're going 1980 and 81. We're, Harold we're, Bud Warren's yeah. like, yeah, I ain't I'm doing out. it. I'm yeah. out. I'm, I'm not interested in going after this guy. Um, and so then, so, it's a couple so, then years. Some, so a few years later, then he, yep. he he retires, moves on, whatever. And the next guy is like, nope, we're we're handling this. War, yeah, Warren Oof. Warren's successor, U.S. Marshal okay. Ken Ken. Yeah, he takes it a little a little more seriously. seriously and so yeah. on on Sunday, February thirteenth, nineteen eighty three, a day most citizens of the tiny town of Medina spend in church, then returning to their warm and cozy homes for Sunday supper with the family. Gordon Call, his wife Joan, and son Yori along with fellow Posse Comitatus sympathizers, Scott Fall, David Brower, Vernon Wagner, and others attend a meeting on farm foreclosures at Martin's Medical Clinic. Shortly before 3 p.m., Stutzman County Deputy Sheriff Bradley Capp sees what he believes is call station wagon at Martin's Clinic. Capp radios in and runs the plates, asks if the warrant for call's arrest is still active. He gets an affirmative on both. Capp hears immediately from Deputy U.S. Marshal Robert Cheshire, who tells him to stake out Martin's clinic because he's coming from Bismarck, about 70 miles to the west of Medina, to arrest Call that very day. Cap follows orders and begins his stakeout. He's cautious, alert. He knows Gordon and Yori and Scott Fall are carrying weapons, which he believes to be Ruger Mini 14s, high-powered 223 caliber rifles. Later that afternoon, Cap observes Gordon, Joan, and Yori Call and Scott Fall leave the clinic in the Call's Chrysler station wagon. At that time, Gordon Call was wearing a blue baseball cap and a bright blue windbreaker, and Yori Call was wearing a brown ski jacket. Yori makes Cap on the street outside the clinic and points in his direction, as if to say, I see you. Your stakeout is blown. A short time later, the Calls and Fall return to the clinic, and move the call station wagon out of Cap's view. So at this point, from inside the clinic, David Brower calls Medina Police Chief Daryl Graff. Graff was allegedly sympathetic to sovereign citizen ideas and movements. It's something he denies, but his subsequent involvement in similar movements and organizations later in life suggests perhaps otherwise. Hmm. The group in the clinic... We're probably hoping to get some insider information on what awaited them outside. We don't know the content of the phone calls, but we do know that when the group is next exits the clinic, Yori and Gordon Call have exchanged clothing. Yori is now wearing the blue windbreaker and blue ball cap, and Gordon is now wearing Yori's brown ski jacket. Additionally, members of the group switch cars, no doubt trying to confuse law enforcement. There's some belief Call's party was tipped off by somebody. A lot of fingers were pointed at Graf. Nobody knows for sure if Graf really did it. 
Sure. Uh, I mean, but, there's but, no way to say it, but I mean, it's it's easy to it's easy to point that finger at him. It is. I mean, no, it, it, and, and people do. Well, and you can't you you can't say that. Um, I mean, clearly these these people were not. I mean, Yori did make cap though. Sure. Let, let's be real. Yori made cap. So yeah, I you know so maybe in his defense, you know, but if if he was accused to be a sympathizer, these people he was are, never he, convicted of anything. Sure. He but, gets fired though. He does get fired from his job. But these people are not yeah. stupid. They're going to have somebody in on that. I mean, it's it's. Yep. They're going to have somebody. Um, so somebody, somebody in law enforcement in in their in their pocket. I, that sounds so cliche. It's possible, but you know what I mean. It's it, it, yeah. Huh. I hate to say it, but there are law enforcement officials who have been involved with with some of these movements. Sure, it's, it's, yeah, sure, yeah. I mean, it happens. It, it happens, and and it's it, you know they don't ruin it for they shouldn't ruin it for everyone. No, you know. But I, 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 by five p.m. daylight beginning to fade from the cold winter sky. Four United States Marshals descend upon the little town of Medina. Deputy Marshals Robert Cheshire and James Hobson from Bismarck and Marshal Ken Muir and Deputy Marshal Carl Wigglesworth from Fargo, about 125 miles from the east. Knowing that Call, his son, and their followers are almost always armed and they are all skilled marksmen, all four marshals are wearing bulletproof vests. Fearing an armed confrontation, the marshals decide to set up a roadblock for the call group well outside of town. Marshals Muir and Wigglesworth head immediately to the roadblock site near the call farm, and Marshals Cheshire and Hobson collect cap in town and then head out to the roadblock. Once at the scene of the roadblock, Muir radios Graf for backup, but suspiciously gets no response. Instead, Deputy Police Chief Steve Schnabel responds and arrives on scene at the roadblock with red lights flashing. First to arrive at the roadblock is the Brower vehicle, with Brower driving and Gordon Call as a passenger. Right behind them is the Call vehicle, with Yori Call driving, Joan Call in the front seat, Scott Fall, and Vernon Wagner in the rear. It's 5.40 p.m. now, and daylight is fading fast. The Call group sees the roadblock and pulls off into a driveway, and Cheshire moves in to block them in. There are several versions of what happens next. It must be said that the surviving call family members and scores of call sympathizers and fans believe law enforcement was overzealous in their pursuit of call. The version we present here is the most official, the most consistent across versions, and the most corroborated. Pinned down in the driveway with no route for escape, you'll recall and Scott Fall jump out of their car, and Gordon Call leaps out of his, all with Ruger Mini-14 rifles drawn and pointed at law enforcement. Yori Call bolts from the car, runs about 50 feet away from the vehicle, and takes cover behind a utility pole. Following best practice, deputies Cheshire and Hobson get out of their car, announce they are there to arrest Call, and tell Gordon, Yori, and Fall to lay down their weapons. At this point, Scott Fall rabbits, running toward a mobile home about 150 feet away. Deputy Hobson again announces they are there to arrest Gordon Call, and then he radios Muir and Fall is that, to, to Muir that Fall is on the run. Wigglesworth leaves their vehicle and gives chase. He confronts Fall from a distance of about 100 feet, announces that he's a U.S. Marshal, and orders Fall to throw down his weapon. It's at this point, almost 6 p.m., tension building like a cauldron about to boil over, law enforcement heavily outgunned by the call group, that all hell breaks loose in the February dusk on that lonely prairie road. Again, versions differ, and it remains uncertain as to whether Yori Call or Scott Fall fired first, but all reliable sources agree that law enforcement did not fire first. From his position behind the utility pole, Yori Call takes careful aim with his high-powered rifle and shoots Cheshire in the chest. Cheshire radios in, Officer hit! Officer hit! Officer hit! Let's go, guys! I'm hit! Bad! Yori fires at Cap, but misses. Cap unleashes a hellstorm of shotgun fire at Yori, emptying the weapon in his direction. Yori falls to the ground, bleeding from the face and stomach. Cheshire... Grievously wounded, manages to fire off three shots from his AR-15. 
Fall begins firing wildly from behind the mobile home, causing great confusion among the officers. One of his shots finds its mark in the already fatally injured Cheshire. Cap's index finger is blown off. Another ricochet sends asphalt flying into Hobson's brain through his ear, causing permanent brain damage. At the same time, Gordon Call fires at Cap, who is barricaded behind the ram charger. Call's bullets shatter the windshield, and glass lodges in Cap's head. Another shot hits Cap in the body armor. Wounded, his gun empty, Cap then runs to a nearby ditch, seeking shelter from the hail of bullets. Cap attempts to reload his shotgun, but his injured finger prevents him from doing so. Okay, and Cap is Cap is one of the posse comitatus guys, right? Cap is an officer. An officer. He's a okay. deputy oh, deputy police oh, officer okay. that yep. came in from town. I'm sorry. He's yep. the one who responded when Grafton oh, responded yes. to the okay. call. Okay, yep, I apologize. With Cap out of the picture, Gordon Call turns his attention to Muir and Schnabel, opening fire. One shot ricochets, hitting Schnabel in the back of the leg. Agent Muir takes aim at aim and shoots at Yori Call, striking him in the chest. But the shot miraculously hits Yori's revolver, which he wears in a shoulder holster. I don't say miraculously because it's great or something, but like, whoa, what are the odds that you get hit in the gun on your shoulder holster? It most likely would have been a kill shot. Before Muir can fire again, Gordon Call fires one deadly shot into the heart of Muir's chest. Then there's a lull in the gun battle. Fall runs to the injured Yori and tries to get him back to the car. Gordon Call quickly assesses the bloody scene. He takes Schnabel's shotgun, revolver, and police cruiser and heads toward Yori and, and Fall in the driveway. Cap sees Call returning and flees, running in the direction of Medina. Gordon Call does not shoot the fleeing officer, but when he comes upon the seriously wounded Cheshire at the Ram Charger, he calmly fires one shot into Cheshire's head at oh. point-blank range, and then a second into Cheshire's neck. Call then levels his rifle at the down Schnabel but chooses to spare his life, instead dragging his injured and bleeding son Yori into the cruiser and fleeing the scene. The entire confrontation lasts approximately 10 minutes. The actual gun battle takes less than a minute. The sum total results, United States Marshal Ken Muir and Deputy United States Marshal Robert Cheshire are dead. Deputy U.S. Marshal James Hobson Deputy Sheriff Bradley Capp and Medina Police Chief Steve Schnabel and Yori Call are all wounded, and Gordon Call and Scott Fall are on the run, resulting in Call's case in one of the most extensive manhunts in United States history. Wow, that's a lot. <sighs> it's explosive, man. It, it's. Do you? Um, I, I have an it, interesting question. I and I. I do you? Th- should they have pursued that warrant? Did they do the right thing? It is. I, I mean, as I shouldn't you, say the right thing because if a person has a warrant, I mean, obviously, but it was not well handled. And as kind of noted when I started this, that this case is literally studied by the United States Marshals on what not to do sure. in fugitive apprehension. Now, I can't tell you what the book does tell you to do, right. but I know I know through the re, through my research that this is used in ex, as an example of of where things all kind of went wrong. It, it, it was extensively. Uh, researched and studied on how they could have done, you know, how, how law enforcement could have handled this uh, differently. Monday morning quarterback it. Right. Right. And, and, and ultimately there was some discussion of course, by sympathizers that, that these marshals were, were, were bloodthirsty and out to get call. And and I don't know if I, if I buy it, like, like us marshal Ken Muir, for example, doesn't have a history of any of that. He's, he's never fired his gun at somebody. He didn't wake up that day thinking I'm going to go get somebody. I'm going to go, I'm going to go shoot Gordon call. I just don't, I don't believe that, that these agents woke up that day thinking we're going to go and we're going to go kill this man uh, during this warrant. We're going to go open fire on this man. I just don't believe believe they set out that morning to do their job that day with some form of malicious intent. And, and, Clearly, things would have escalated. I mean, I think anybody could see that 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 these people were going to escalate. Uh, it, 
I mean, you can but, one but, can. Bud Warden didn't want to serve a warrant to call for this very reason. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. what 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 you do in a situation like this? I I don't have the answer, but I know sure. that it's not what these guys did. Sure. It's yeah. not. Yeah. And and they've admitted, you know, they've they've more or less admitted that. Right. Through, through it, history, it, yeah. And maybe and maybe that was I didn't phrase the question properly. Oh, it's fine. You know, but um, yeah. I mean, I guess you know, I'm curious what could have been done differently. Yeah. I, I, and to to avoid. Don't that, try I mean, to take call when he's got an armada. Uh, maybe try to get him at his house. I mean, just, yeah. you know, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's huh? interesting. Okay. In the immediate aftermath following the shootout, Gordon call takes his son and wife to the Medina clinic says that he will, he says what will be his final goodbye and quickly departs with Scott fall into the night. He has no intention of going back to jail after being treated for his wounds and stabilized. Yori is immediately arrested. Gordon call is now one of the most wanted men in America. The manhunt was on, and everybody is in on it. The FBI, BCI, U.S. Marshal Service, state and local police, bounty hunters, you name it. The call to action was massive. The very next day, on February 14th, agents swarm around Medina, searching the fields, sloughs, and prairies of North Dakota. Roadblocks are set up throughout the state. Joan Call, Vernon Wegner and David Brower are arrested and charged with murder. Brower faints. A search turns up an alleged getaway vehicle near the Call farm. A SWAT team surrounds the small home, hungry and eager to get their villain. More than 100 agents barricade themselves around the property. Late that night, Scott Fall turns himself into authorities in Pheasanden, North Dakota. He's arrested, charged with murder, and taken to Jamestown. He has with him a letter, which he claims is written by Gordon Call. It's taken as evidence. I'm going to read what that letter says, and I want to note that there are a number of versions of this letter circulating online. Some of them are embellished. Uh, some of them were, were, were misprinted. This is the one that is in the United States Marshal's evidence. This is the letter, and and it it looks like it's scrawled on like a piece of a brown paper bag that was ripped. So I'm going to read that letter. This was from Scott, or this was from Gordon Call. Scott Fall turned this letter in with him when he turned himself in. This is from Gordon Call, quote his letter. Scott and Yori had no part in shooting anyone. I don't know if one of the marshals fired first or if it was one of the others who had us surrounded. I heard a shot, and Yori said, I'm hit. One of the marshals yelled and looked back over his shoulder and said, Who fired? About that time, someone else fired, and I saw Yori fall. I realized then that we were all going to be slaughtered as the marshals pulled down on the rest of us, and I fired as fast as I could locate a target. Yori's forty-five in the shoulder holster took a rifle bullet from either the first or second shot, and I believe the other shot came from a shotgun. My wife, Joan, had no part in it. She only went along to visit with a couple other ladies who were going to be at the meeting. Gordon W. Call. Hmm. With all the other arrests made and having staked out the call property overnight, officers are given the order to acquire call and they open fire on the homestead. Hundreds of shots ring off, thundering across the prairie. Tear gas is fired into the home. Members of the elite force mobilize, breaching into the home, screaming orders, clearing each room. But alas, it is abandoned, except for the Call family dog, oh, man. who was inadvertently killed during the onslaught. It's always the dog. Like, always. Really? That just, that, no. Oh. A search of the home turns up weapons, ammo, and white supremacist propaganda literature printed by Posse Comitatus. Having turned up nothing of use in the search for America's most wanted man, authorities begin to work all potential leads and extend the boundaries of their investigation, which in turn brings their attention to the small town of Ashley, North Dakota. Town of about 1,200, allegedly sympathetic to Posse Comitatus. On February 17th, 
There's a major gathering and mobilization of law enforcement officers in Jamestown, which is now serving as the command post for the operation. Which is only about like 30, 40 minutes from... Yeah, from, not far at all. I mean, it's not far I from I think it's Medina. like 80 miles. Something is like it? Okay, yeah. yeah it's, it's something like that. It's not from, far from... Medina? From, yeah. Yeah, from, I think from actually they're about 80. Okay, um, gotcha. So their, their sole purpose, to hunt down the fugitive Gordon Call, a convoy of trucks and law enforcement officials totaling 16 in number. Blast off at dawn for Ashley, descending upon the small town like stormtroopers. Armed men are everywhere. Squad cars post up at either end of the town, stopping traffic. A military-style search of the entire city is conducted. The little border town is all but ransacked in their efforts to find call. They turn up nothing. A televised news conference is held in Fargo. Joan Call pleads with her husband, quote, Please, Gordon, please. I don't want you dead, too. Please, I can't take any more. They won't hurt you. I've been treated real well here. Two men are dead. Others are going to be hurt. So do you suppose, um, what did they What did they offer her to make that? I, I feel like she was probably pretty genuine and didn't want so? to see her husband die. Yeah. The others... Yori and, and, and Fall Bro or Wagner, none of them made any similar statements. I believe authorities really wanted Call to turn himself in. This lady did not want to see the man she loved die, regardless of what he may or may not be guilty of at this point. You know? Sure. And because. And there's no telling if her pleas were ever heard by her husband. I, we, I, there's no telling if he saw that news conference. It's not like he could go to YouTube and watch it later right. at that point. Right. It, it aired in Fargo and that was that. And, and really, no one knows for sure exactly how Call slipped past the Dakota dragnet of federal authorities, but he manages to elude them for quite some time. Allegedly, Call made his way south to Texas, traveling exclusively on country roads, avoiding highways and the interstate. Well, that makes sense since he believes, you know, the counties have the full power. Full power. Authorities offer a $25,000 reward for information leading to the apprehension of Call. The investigation is prolific. Call's friends and family are watched closely. Every possible lead is pursued. But Call is elusive and well-supported. He lives off the grid for several months. Three months later, on May 9th, the jury selection begins for the trial of Yori, Joan, Fall, and Brower. That's quick. Oh, yeah. Three months. Oh, it's super quick. Holy smokes. Uh, Wagner gets a plea bargain in exchange for his testimony. And three days later, on May 12th, the trial starts. Doesn't take long. 16 days later, on May 28th, the trial is over. The jury reaches a guilty verdict. Fall and Yori Call are convicted of second-degree murder. Joan Call is acquitted. Brower is convicted of conspiring to assault and harboring a fugitive. The three men, they can, you know, they're they're convicted. They appeal. They lose the appeal. And and really, I'm I'm not going to go into the details of all that. But I assure you, there's plenty of drama over who shot first. Differing opinions of what happened, whether there was a fair trial, whether the judge was was biased, whether the jury was biased. They tried to move venues, uh, but it's it's it happens quick, and they really do. They push these guys through the system very fast compared to all the other murders that, oh, that, that sure. we've covered here. Yeah. It, it's oh, it's surprising, it's shocking. So yeah, meanwhile, shocking, Gordon Call still on the lam. By now, he's made his way to Arkansas, moving from place to place with the help of his friend Art Russell before finally settling in with Leonard and Norma Ginter. The Ginters live on a, a live on a remote property described as a survivalist bunker. These people, Don, were ready for the apocalypse. Oh, that's terrifying. Oh, yeah. Although it was said the Ginters lived on a limited, even poverty-level income, their home was built to withstand the collapse of society. Quote, that's a quote, according to Bill Wade, who owns the property near Imboden. So, I mean, like, this is beyond a doomsday prepper. I mean, this they're is, ready. They're oh, ready yeah. for everything. Yeah, not only that, but the Ginters are also said to have a long-standing mistrust of the government and were formerly charter members of a posse comitatus chapter in Wisconsin. Of course. Well, they're going to take care of their own. Yep. Yeah. 
The house was built into the side of the hill and made from concrete with only one access point. The Ginters had a very clear view of anyone approaching their home. Call lived quietly there for a while, but you can't hide forever and you can't trust anyone. Authorities were eventually tipped off to Call's whereabouts by Art Russell's daughter, Karen Russell Robertson, who had dinner with Call, her father, and another sympathizer by the name of Ed Uday. I'm guessing she's out of the will. <laughs> yeah. With uh, She gets the 25K, though. Oh, that's, that's, oh, that's real. Good. She does get the money. Uh, with the knowledge of Call's location and the certainty they'll soon have their man, federal authorities plan their siege of the Ginter home. Now, before we go into this, I have to say again, there are a few different accounts of Call's final standoff at the Ginter bunker. And after spending hours reading about this case... I'm still not sure which version to believe. What I do know is that it ends in more death and more violence. Does it make you question? I mean... You'll see. Okay. You'll see. Oh, gosh, I'm getting excited. Spoiler alert. I know, sorry. Here is the official version of the standoff in Arkansas. On June 3rd, a roadblock is set up and the Ginters are caught, either leaving the home or returning to it. They're now removed from the picture, and law enforcement knows Gordon Call is holed up in the house, which they have surrounded. Lawrence County Sheriff Harold Matthews, backed up by two officers, enter the home. As officers make their way into the kitchen, Gordon Call, armed with his trusty Mini-14, emerges from behind the refrigerator and opens fire on Sheriff Matthews, who simultaneously fires back. Harold Matthews is hit in the chest. Call is shot right through the head. The agents immediately retreat. Two FBI agents hear the gunshots and blindly fire their shotguns into the house, hitting Sheriff Matthews with buckshot. A bloody and mortally injured Matthews staggers from the bunker. Meanwhile, a deputy marshal, along with local law enforcement, another local law enforcement officer, had climbed onto the roof of the house and dropped flaming gas canisters down the chimney. A barrage of gunfire is discharged at the home by law enforcement. The concrete house proved to be super flammable, and sparks from the fire caused the massive stores of ammunition to explode. Law enforcement officers expected Call would flee from the burning home, but were unaware, given the chaos, that Call was in fact dead from Matthew's headshot. Call's charred remains were recovered the next day and Matthew's tragically died in surgery. Now there is the other account of this story, which I believe is pieced together from statements of the Ginters, as well as Bill Wade, who owned the property, and police radio band chatter that was picked up by local residents monitoring the situation paints a very different picture. Again, these are alternate tellings of what happened here. I gave you what is the official account. That that what I just said, that's that's the that official, the official account. The official like what? Yeah. And and this is the one that is uh, again pieced together from testimony from the Ginters uh, and and Bill Wade and radio chatter. Leonard Ginter was stopped at the roadblock after leaving the house. When asked about Call, Ginter claimed the only person in his house was his wife. So law enforcement, led by a special FBI attack team that was flown in from D.C., allow Ginter to call his wife out from the home. Once she exits, eager and trigger-happy federal gunmen fire thousands of rounds into the home. Sheriff Matthews is incidentally killed during this bullet storm. The FBI attack team then enters the house in assault mode, finding Call still alive in the well-secured, concrete bunker-style home. Call is forcibly drugged into the living room, beaten with the butt of guns, and essentially tortured while the house is torn apart. A fireman's axe from the Ginter bunker is then used to dismember Gordon Call's hands and his feet. He's then soaked in diesel fuel, and set on fire while he's still alive and still gushing blood from his arms and legs. He shot point blank in the head before the fire and bleeding does its job. Then, there was allegedly confusion 
over whether or not they really got call that perhaps it was in fact Bill Wade. Roadblocks were set up again. Cars were searched. A panic amongst law enforcement set in. But then, hours later, Bill Wade showed up alive. It was called off and the FBI attack team left. Now, that's the end of the alternate version. Again, now, again, I was saying, I'm saying allegedly a lot, and for that I apologize, you guys, but there's so much out there about this story. Allegedly, Bill Bill Wade's son found a foot at the Ginter residence the week after the shootout. That foot was later confirmed to be Gordon Call's dismembered limb. There were death threats made to Bill Wade, his son, and many other locals sympathetic to the posse. And this entire event is is eventually used as a rallying call for tax protesters across the nation. Edwin C. Uday, Arthur H. Russell, Leonard Ginter, and Norma Ginter were indicted for harboring and concealing a fugitive and for conspiracy to do the same. They were convicted of all the charges. Now, a lot of the stuff from that alternate story is told by the Ginters. They, They take their appeal pretty far and suggest there was an excessive use of force, uh, that, that they didn't need to use an accelerant on the home, and, 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 and all of that. And, and, and guys, there are numerous books, documentaries, videos out there on this. I mean, there's like a 16-hour documentary all about Gordon Cullen, all about this stuff. So there's a lot out there. And, and just mostly what I wanted to do is we did the best we could to give the formal story and pepper in at least at the end here this this alternative presentation now i i saw the picture of gordon calls remains man he is charred up it does seem weird to me the suggestion that a concrete bunker home started on fire bad enough to the point that his remains were that that bad i mean he looked like a hot dog that you forgot on the grill that's what his body looked like wow uh, it's not a, great. And yeah. supposedly the coroner corrob- corroborates some of the, uh, that, that yeah, maybe there was bruised tissue on there. And then ultimately it's ruled as his corpse is too beat up. But they say like Bill Wade and some of these other guys, they try to bring forth lawsuits and they try to bring forth the, the truth. And supposedly they're, they're shut down with death threats and tax threats and all of this. So that's where this is really rooted in some of these wild conspiracies as to what really happened there in Arkansas. Wow. That's why I say I, I'm it, not I am not sure what to believe. Sure. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. Um Joan just passed away like last year, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Yori um, Yori's still alive. Yori is still and, alive. And in in uh where was he? Like Illinois or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember, but he he petitioned to be released. Yeah, a couple times. Um well just most recently right. because of COVID. Um, and then, um, but in, you know, reading Joan's obituary, I mean, it's just like every, every day. I didn't mention this little kerfluffle. No, no. It's, so I, it, I wonder, I wonder how she actually felt, you know, I, I wonder about that. Um, how she actually felt about the whole thing and, and, uh, I don't know. That's, I don't know why I go there. I'm not sure. But. Well, you got to feel bad. Like her son is in prison forever. Her her husband murdered a few people. And if if the Call family is as invested into the posse comis, comitatus ideals as is represented in their history, I will say in everything we present, none of that is alternate history. None of that is is conspiracy. Like the the sources back all that up. Yeah, the, it's the, it's the basically only, what happened to his remains and r- what happened or how he died. Right. The only things that are in question are exactly what happened in the shootout in Medina and exactly what happened in Arkansas. G- Gordon's involvement in the posse and his anti-semitism it's it's well established that's real and i I think that's where i that's why i asked the question at the very beginning of did he actually fall prey i don't think he was prey if you you can't if you don't feel that way you can't you can't listen i mean we've all heard of cults and you know was he just drinking the the jim jones kool-aid i mean you know but but there's a difference uh, when you've got such hate in there. His story radicalizes the sovereign movement big time because he was a war hero. He was a, 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 a quote, good. he was pretty good. I want to say he was thought of, well thought of by neighbors. Sure. Helpful. Yeah. Again, the, 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 a decorated war veteran has, has, has done it, right? Right. Uh, so I don't know, to watch 
the hero become a villain it's 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 Ugh. it's just it's sad it's tragic it is, yeah. it's a terrible story and and that's uh folks i it's it was a, a different form of murder than we've done in the previous tales but as 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 we say we we want to bring you the most notorious and and infamous and this one certainly uh right up there in the history of north dakota so uh, sources for today's episode quite a few in putting together all this information history commons murderpedia Mur- murderpedia law.justia.com the hpr article on graph hbr1.com, usmmuseum.org, military.wikia.org, upi.com, nytimes.com, the book Bitter Harvest, historycommons.org, and North Dakota Case Files. And of course, a special thank you to Dr. Sean Antangney for her efforts in writing, uh, helping to write and research this episode of Midwest Murder. You can catch Sean Ann's work also uh, produced here at the Good Talk Network, the show Myth America. It's a podcast that airs every other Monday, the opposite weeks of Midwest Murder. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, rate, review, subscribe. We'll see you in a few weeks. <laughs>